listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Kelowna. For more information about our church, please visit harvestkelowna.ca. So this morning, we're going to be carrying on with uh, in the 5G series that we have been going through over the last six or seven weeks. And the text that we're going to be looking at this morning comes to us from Acts chapter 2. And we'll be spending most of our time in verses 2 or 42 to 47 of Acts chapter 2. And I'll, I'll begin by reading those and, uh, and then we'll dive into the, to the word this morning. So Acts chapter 2 verses 42 to 47. I'm actually going to, I'm going to read from verse 37 to 47. Peter has just preached a sermon and he's just called the people um, in his audience. um, He has told them that they were the ones that crucified Jesus Christ as Lord. And when we start here in verse 37, this is their response. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and all your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day By day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. So this morning, as we continue our 5G series, We're looking uh, at group time from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And just to recap where we are right now in this series, we're in the middle of, of a series called I Follow Christ. And our goal in this series is to create the DNA for Harvest Kelowna. You didn't know that. That's, that's what we're trying to do here. We believe that the center of the Christian faith or the Christian life is described well by the title of this series, I Follow Christ. 
From there, we've seen that Christ has three, following Christ has really three main components. Abiding, connecting, and sharing. And these three ideas are core. They're fundamental to life because they appear in the Bible over and over again. And they're stated in different ways by different authors in both the Old Testament and New Testament. And our goal is to incorporate these core ideas into our lives. But at this point, we're faced with a time issue, right? If these core ideas, abiding, connecting, and sharing, are so important, then we must think about how and where we're going to put them. How are we going to fit them into our lives? And two weeks ago, we saw that to abide in Christ, we need God time. Last week, we learned that in order to connect with Christ, we need to gather as a body. We need gathering time as a body, together, worshiping, listening to the word being preached. And this week, we're going to take one step further and see that connecting to the body also takes group time. And so the title of today's sermon is Community, Five Reasons Why You Need It. Uh, People today in churches and outside churches recognize that community is under attack. It's really everywhere in the news. But this is not really a new thing. There's, There's always been forces at work in every culture and society and era that threaten community. What is unique in our day is the way in which community is under threat. The big thing that seems to grab the attention of the news and media these days is the way that our digital devices are keeping us from having face-to-face interactions with people. But this is just the latest installment in a long list of threats to community. Centuries ago, industrialization threatened community as people left their villages for the city. Decades ago, the church or the suburbs threatened communities as people no longer lived and worked in their neighborhoods. Front porches disappeared and gated backyards sprang up. People drove their cars into garages, closed the doors, and didn't come out of their houses until the next day when they had to go back to work not having interacted with any of their neighbors. But all of these observations and explanations may really be just a cover-up for the real problem. So I grew up on a farm in rural BC, and you would think, well, if anywhere is going to have community, that would be the place that you'd have community. But that's not true. We were busy. We had lots of things to do on our farm, And we had very little time for leisure activities and less time for helping others out. And that basically describes our human nature. We are selfish. But in one sense, none of these explanations really even matter. Because everyone has a problem finding community. And then if we find community, we just have a difficult time living in community because community is hard and community takes a lot of time. 
So this morning, we're going to see from the text that there are five reasons why you need community. And truthfully, I'm cheating a little bit on the first point in this uh, message, which is not really about why you need community, but that you need Jesus in order to have community. And this idea doesn't come from Acts 2.42 to 47. It comes from the previous context. We, we don't just land in chapter 2, 42 to 47 out of nowhere. We don't just parachute in and there's nothing around. No, there's a context to chapter 2, 42 to 47. We get to our passage this morning, um, and a significant event has just occurred. In fact, the most important event in human history has just taken place. I'm not, I'm not under-exaggerating anything here. Jesus has just poured out the Holy Spirit on his people, marking the beginning of the final chapter in God's plan, the birth of the church. This is the beginning of the end. This is what all of time is pointing to according to God's word. God is saving people into this brand new covenant community through repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. But the main idea in chapter 2 is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Everything that happens in the text that we're looking at in Acts 2, 42 to 47 is the fruit. It's the result of the Spirit indwelling believers. It's what happens when God puts His Spirit in people. Most of Acts 2 is a sermon that Peter preaches in which he identifies the events that his audience is witnessing as the unfolding of the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. That's that's chapter 2. All the promises that God made to Abraham about his seed being blessed one day in the future are being fulfilled right here in this chapter as Jesus pours out his spirit on these disciples. And at the end of his sermon, the people are convicted of their sin of crucifying Jesus Christ and ask Peter what should they do to be saved. And, and, and Peter answers, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. These two actions, right? These two ideas, repentance and faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, these two things are the only way that one becomes a follower of Jesus and receives the Holy Spirit and becomes a member of the people of God. Now this morning, there are at least three groups of people here. First, there are genuine believers, people who understand that they are sinners, who have in the past and continue to repent of sins, and who are looking to Jesus for the forgiveness and right standing before him. There's also a second group of people who are here today. A set of people who have come this morning knowing that they are not part of God's people. Knowing that they have not repented from their sins and have not put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. 
there's that group of people here as well. But there is also a third group of people here this morning who think they are Christians, but in fact are not. Perhaps you are here this morning because you said a prayer once as a child at camp, but your life never really changed. Your hope is in a prayer. Maybe you're here this morning because you think that going to church is good for you. Your hope is that one day you will be good enough to stand before God. Maybe, maybe you're here um, because you think Christianity is a little like fire insurance, and if you come off enough and pay, and pay your insurance premiums, you're going to be protected from that eternal fire. Your hope is in an escape policy. If you're here for any of these reasons, I want to be clear, you are not part of the people of God. And you might come to church, you might even attend small group, but you are not part of the church. Now, I want to be crystal clear this morning. What I know that what I just said is weighty, and perhaps some of you think it's harsh, but until we properly diagnose a disease, we can't find a cure. We need to know what's wrong before we can fix it. I've not said anything here in order to be mean. That was not my intention. But with the hope of actually being able to help people come to Jesus. You see, this morning we're talking about why you need community. But before we can even start talking about community, you need to know if you're on the inside or the outside. And there's only two prerequisites for entrance into the community. Faith and repentance. But there are a couple of, of very helpful tests in discerning whether you're part of the people of God or not. Ways that you can look at your life and really find out. And the, first, the first way is really by answering the question, do you love Jesus? And I'm not talking about when you said a prayer as an eight-year-old. Do you love him right now? Is he beautiful to you? Do you ever desire to know him intimately? Do you ever delight to spend time with him in the word and in prayer? Delight and desire are good tests to know where you stand, where your heart stands before God. The second is, what is the fruit of your life? Does it look like the fruit of a Christian? Of these Christians in Acts 2. Do you want to be? Do you want to be with God's people? Sometimes we have to start with just the want. Sometimes just wanting to want to be with God's people is a place to start. But do you want to be with God's people? Are you giving and sharing and bearing the burdens of others? Or are you bothered by other Christians? Are you eager to get out of the building as fast as possible so that you don't have to talk to anyone? If you're struggling with some of these things that I've said, there is good news for you. The same hope that Peter gives 
to the Jews who crucified Jesus is the same good news that you and I need. Repent. Repent of your selfishness. Repent of your self-righteousness. Repent for not desiring to be with Jesus. Repent for not desiring to be with his bride, the church. Real repentance produces deep sorrow and a change of heart. But it also produces joy when the burden and shame, the burden of guilt and the shame is lifted as you confess your sins to the Lord. When Jesus forgives your sins, your, the, the response of every believer is joy. It's love, it's delight, it's desire, it's deep, deep affection. That's what the Holy Spirit produces in the life and the hearts of, of believers. So community begins with Jesus, but as we'll see from the text, we need community to live a disciplined life together. In verse 42, we see four practices or disciplines that, the, that characterize the early church. Of these four practices, the, the four practices are they gathered together to hear the apostles' teaching for fellowship for breaking of bread and prayer. And you could be forgiven if you thought that, the, that only fellowship was really about community. But the truth is that each of these four practices go with community like peanut butter and jam. And let me explain. When these early Christians were saved and filled with the Spirit, they were immediately transformed. They had new hearts, and with those new hearts came new desires, desires that the Spirit in them stirred up. And one of those desires was that the Spirit stirs up is for the Word of God, specifically to gather with God's people and hear the Word proclaimed, the Word of God that was formerly confusing or boring or restricting became alive and life-giving. But we need the church to help us grow in this discipline. This is not just something that we can do on our own in our own little devotional quiet times. Those are good. We need those as well. But we need the body. Big White and Okanagan Lake can be very alluring in their respective seasons. Sometimes we just feel like we need a break after a long week and Saturday just doesn't seem like enough. And this is when we need the people of God checking up on us, encouraging us, challenging us. The word also shapes us as a people. As we hear it, it changes us. When we all hear the same word preached week after week after week, the word moves the whole body to obedience in certain directions. Right now, we're all being pushed to live out this life, this 5G life, and it's in response to the preaching of God's word. But we also need community to keep us in fellowship with the church. Some of you 
who were saved later in life may have thought that Christians were strange, narrow-minded, self-righteous people. But after you were made alive by God, your affections for the people of God change. Yes, they might be difficult to live with, but you have come to understand that they are your family. And we need God's people to help us to understand what family is and how family should function. I, I mean... Many of you here will have grown up in, in single homes. And for those of you, including myself, who haven't grown up in single parent homes, we all live in dysfunctional homes of some sort. The point is that we are all sinners saved by grace, and we need community, the community of believers, to learn how to live with one another when our feelings get hurt. We need the body to preach the grace of forgiveness and then to extend forgiveness to us when we hurt others. But we also need the community of believers to call us to repentance when we sin, when we've said something unkind or gossiped about somebody or lied. This is what fellowship in the church looks like. The same is true with the breaking of, of bread, right? So that we're on this, the, third, the third part here, the third discipline. What we would call the Lord's Supper. Before you're a Christian, this Lord's Supper looks like some kind of weird cult-like practice. And if you know anything about the meaning behind the symbols, it's even weirder. But when you become a Christian, you understand that Jesus gave his body, and poured out his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. And these symbols become very precious to you. And you partake of them in community. And as you look around at your brothers and sisters partaking of the Lord's Supper with you, you rejoice. Because you know some of the skeletons in their closet and they know some of your skeletons in your closet. But you also know that this blood, this cup, and this bread that you're partaking of symbolizes the body and blood of Christ that has forgiven your sins, that has forgiven your brother or your sister's sins. The Lord's Supper ties us together as a community and points us right back to the gospel, the heart of Christianity. And finally, prayer. Before a person becomes a Christian, prayer may have seemed like a, you know, strange people talking into thin air, hoping to gain some kind of health benefit from it. But believers have come to understand that prayer is both a privilege and a right to come directly into God's presence and to do this with the whole church. And more than that, when our prayers are answered, the whole church rejoices together. When the church prays for the salvation of a sinner and God saves that person, the entire church experiences joy together as a community. One person's joy is multiplied amongst the entire body.
And we need this body of believers. We need community to grow in these disciplines. We need our brothers and sisters to know where we can go off the rails. Do I miss a couple of weeks of church each month? Or is there a besetting sin that I struggle with? Am I struggling in my prayer life? And does anyone know about it? If there are ongoing patterns of sin in my life, and I don't have other Christians in my life who know about these things, I'm a fool and I'm a proud man. If I'm not in regular community confessing my sins and sharing my struggles with my brothers or sisters, I'm a fool and I'm not using the means of grace that God has given me for my growth in Christ-likeness. Galatians 2, 6 verse 2, challenges us to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It's only in community that we can do this. Who is going to remind you of the gospel when you're burdened down with sin? That is a crushing weight. Who's going to point you to the forgiveness at the cross if you're not in regular fellowship with God's people? The weight of sin is crushing. You need brothers and sisters to bear that load with you and get you to the one who can remove the burden. Jesus, you need your brothers and sisters doing that for you. So we've seen that You need community to live a disciplined life, to grow and thrive. But community also impacts your neighborhood. When Jesus poured out the Holy Spirit on believers, the text says that awe fell on every soul. We see this in verse 43. The first thing to notice is the contrast between verses 43 and 44. In verse 44, we read that, it, that it's all the people who believe that we're together. This is talking about the body of Christ. In verse 43, it's talking about everyone. The fear, this awe or this fear comes upon every soul, which, which suggests that the entire city of Jerusalem is affected by what's just happened in chapter 2, by this Coming spirit, Jesus pouring his spirit out on the believers. But where does this awe, what is it and where does it come from? And I think there's a a few possible sources. Why why is the city in an uproar? Why, what, what, what is it that they're awestruck by? Well, one of the things that might lead to this sense of awe, is the judgment that Peter was preaching in in Acts chapter 2. He didn't pull any punches. He told them that they had crucified Jesus Christ and there was judgment coming for that. He also gave them the gospel, which was hope for people who were sinners. But there was a a sense of judgment in Acts. In Peter's preaching. A second source is likely the wonders and signs that we see in the second part of verse 43 that the apostles are doing. 
But I want to suggest that at least some of the people's awe must have come from the radical nature of the new community of God's people. What we read in Acts 2, 42 to 47, is absolutely breathtaking. It's staggering. It it is otherworldly. You don't see these kinds of communities in the world. They, They just don't exist. This spiritual transformation of the people of God has the potential to impact a school, a neighborhood, a city, even a nation. But you cannot do it on your own, and you can't do it on your own for two reasons. First, you're not saved into the community of me, myself, and I. You were saved into a community. When you put your faith and trust in Jesus, it doesn't just stop there. You are saved but you're saved into the body of Christ. This is the community, the whole community of believers. You cannot live, by definition, you're part of a body. You cannot live your Christian life alone. Second, there there have been radical individuals since the beginning of mankind, since since throughout the history of mankind, And who gets the glory when those radical individuals rise up and accomplish great things? It's the radical individual. And what happens? His name or her name goes down in the history books. It's recorded for all of posterity. But a radical community? What exactly is a radical community? Let's just maybe define that for a second. A radical community is a community that's characterized by these things that we see in the text. Unity, generosity, sacrifice, and giving glory to God in Jesus Christ. This is a radical community. You, you don't see this. And this, is the kind, this kind of community can have unbelievable power to impact society. And how does it happen? How does does all of this change community? Well, it happens when the Holy Spirit brings all sorts of people together and they begin to put one another before themselves. They cease to, to jockey for position and instead they build others up. They encourage each other to serve with the gifts that God's given them. Rather than gossiping, they speak the truth to one another. And sometimes they say hard things. Sometimes they encourage. Sometimes they comfort. And most remarkable of all is that when somebody, is, when somebody in the group of people does gossip or does lie, they confess their sins to one another. That's just unbelievable. That is an awkward thing to do. It's hard to do. It's hard to confess your sins to someone else. You, 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 you really feel vulnerable when you do that. But what's even more remarkable 
is that the people that you confess your sins to forgive you. And that's, that right there is perhaps the most radical thing about the church is that when it does all of those things, it looks a lot like Jesus. All of a sudden, it, it, it no longer looks like regular people in the world. It looks like something entirely different. It looks a lot like Jesus. And we often think that having a radical impact on the community means feeding the hungry, clothing the naked, visiting the imprisoned and sick, helping the destitute. And I, I, don't mishear me. These things are all good things to do. In fact, they're remarkable things to do. But what is far more remarkable in our culture, in the culture that we live in and breathe in and work in, is a community of people who humble themselves and confess their sins to one another. That is far more remarkable than the former. And let me assure you, if we spend our lives serving in soup kitchens and giving to orphanages, the world will love what we are doing. But they won't think that we're any different than they are. They like these things. They want to do these things. But if we start living as a family and learn and grow in preferring one another, in confessing our sins to one another, and bearing each other's burdens in the name of Christ, the world will take notice, just like it did in Acts 2. And the world might not like what we're doing. It might call us names. It might accuse us of legalism. It might say that we're part of a cult. But it will take notice of us, because the world has never experienced this kind of radical, sacrificial, other-centered community. That is, that's radical community, and that kind of community will change your schools, it will change your neighborhoods, it will change cities. It, it, is, it will have an impact on the world. So not only does this a new community of believers radically impact the world around them, but this community of believers helps each other live out the gospel. Uh, just read the text with me in uh, 2, 42 to 47, and it almost needs no comment here, but I'll just read it again. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is a description of the community that characterized the early church. I just want us to observe some things here. Observe the unity that we see here. They were together with one mind, taking their meals together. Observe 
The selflessness, right? They had all things in common. They weren't hoarding things, right? They didn't treat them as their own. Observe the other-centeredness here. They were sharing with all as anyone might have need. Observe the fellowship and the regularity of the fellowship day by day together in the temple. Observe the nature of the fellowship. What, what did this look like? They were breaking bread, so they were spending time with one another, right? They, they didn't just meet once a week. They were meeting daily. They were having lunches together, right? They were spending time together. And they did this with gladness and sincerity of heart. This wasn't some kind of false pretense that they were putting on, all the while praising God. This is the nature of their fellowship. And finally, observe their relationships with others, with outsiders, having favor with all men. That's, that's unbelievable. Everybody, they might not have liked everything about them, but, but they had favor. They, they, were res- they were well respected. Nobody could point fingers at them. Nobody could call them hypocrites. I think the best way to sum up what we read in verses 44 to 47 is that this new community of believers is living out the gospel. Many have called this a form of communism, but this is not a political movement. Political movements are concerned with power and power distribution. The early church was not concerned with power distribution. It was controlled by the gospel. Everything that we see here is gospel motivated. Let me fill that out for you a little bit. The unity that we see here is the response of believers to the spiritual reality that they are one body in the Lord. There's this truth, this reality, this spiritual reality. I am one in with Christ. I am part of one body. And that's what fuels the unity. The selflessness and the other-centeredness that we see here is grounded upon the spiritual reality that Christ came not to, to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. What we're seeing here in, the, in this text is just the living out in the community of that reality, that spiritual reality. <coughs> the remarkable joy and generosity that we see here is the response of the believers to this magnificent gift of salvation that God has given them. And their favor with all men flows out of a right relationship with God. Everything about these first Christians comes from and flows out of the joy that comes from having sins forgiven, the gospel. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that meeting once a week at a church is is not enough. Now, I want you to be careful. I want to be careful here. I want you to hear me rightly. I, I don't want to try and give us a bunch of, a list of things that we have to do. And I'll try and fill that out here. But it clearly means 
that coming to church once a week is not enough. Now, coming to church twice, four, three, five times a week, is that going to make us more righteous? No, not at all. But we, we, when the Spirit invades a person's heart, their desire to be together changes. The, the New Testament believers met daily, not because they had to, not because there was any righteousness in it, but because they understood that they were part of a family. It means that even meeting once a week in a small group at church is not enough. When we get the gospel, when we really get the gospel, when we begin to understand how much Christ loved his bride, the church, and we taste the joy that comes from being forgiven, we won't have to do these things. We will want to do these things. And let me tell you, it is beginning to happen here at Harvest Kelowna already. It's happening when one brother finds out that another brother is grabbing supper at midnight after being with his wife in the hospital all day and joins him. Right? It's happening when one sister drives another sister to get medical tests done. It's happening when people are praying for the salvation of a spouse. It's happening when a small, a small group visits a sister in the hospital or when meals are being prepared for a new mom. This is the gospel being worked out in community. You need community to live out the gospel. The question is, are you being community for others in the body? Are you being that community? And finally, you need community in order to live on mission in the world. You can probably see from the previous point that much of what we have already talked about is going to result in mission. Us engaging with the world and bringing the gospel to the nations. But we see clearly this clearly stated in the last part of verse 47. And the Lord added was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. The principle is simple. A spirit-filled people will live spirit-filled and spirit-controlled lives that will impact their communities as they live out the gospel with one another and God will save the world as he does this. As people do this, sorry. We often think that reaching our neighborhoods and cities and nations with the gospel takes some grand strategic planning. But the truth is that God has planned for the gospel to go forth and impact the world through your relationships with each other. It's really simple. This here is how you living together, loving one another, bearing one another's burdens, caring for one another, serving one another, confessing your sins, forgiving one another. You doing those things is how God saves the world. So what are you going to do? Will you start by repenting to your brothers or sisters and bringing your sin into the light? Will you commit to regular fellowship with God's people? Will you begin to live transparently in the church and share your struggles and bear your brother or sister's burdens? Will you fight for unity 
in the church and give yourself to finding out who is hurting in the body? Will you commit to deep friendships? Will you be a friend? Will you forsake shallow conversations hoping to avoid costly investments of time and energy in your brothers and sisters? Now, apart from the gospel, this is just another list of do's and don'ts. But in the gospel, this is power to bring transformation to your workplaces, your social networks, your neighborhoods, your cities, and your nation. And and when this starts to happen, when this really starts to hit you, when you start to experience this kind of community, you want to tell people. You want to bring people. Just like like, uh, the apostles. So Andrew meets Jesus. And what's the first thing that he does? I got to go get my brother. I got to bring him to Jesus. That's what happens when we start to experience this kind of community. And I, I want to challenge you, Harvest Kelowna. Don't, don't settle for less. Don't just view this as, as another church that I can attend once a week and, and be fed by. No, it's, this is the Christian life demands more than that. You are missing out on the best part of the Christian life. You want to see the nation saved? Get to know your brother or sister. Really dig in. Live life together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that your word uh, is powerful, that it is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it is able to divide joint and spirit soul, joint and marrow soul and spirit. And God, we pray that even as you convict us this morning, that your spirit would comfort us. God, I pray that we would be a repenting people, that we would see our sins and turn from them and turn to Jesus and and turn to the gospel and live lives that are spirit-filled, powerful, uh, just witnesses of the truth of the gospel. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.